What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 4th. Today, how President Trump is reshaping federal courts, a White House feud with intelligence chiefs, and the State of the Union's designated survivor. More than halfway through his term, President Trump still hasn't filled a huge number of senior government jobs. Many officials, including Chief of Staff, Attorney General, Defense Secretary, Interior Secretary, OMB Director, EPA Chief, they're actually serving in acting capacity. But there's one area where Trump has been way more effective. Nominations to federal appeals courts. The federal appeals courts hear cases involving gun regulations, abortion, immigration policy, the environment. Anne Marimo covers legal affairs for The Post. And she says that the president has installed more appeals court judges than any other president at this point in their term. On Tuesday, his pick to replace Brett Kavanaugh will face the Senate Judiciary Committee. These appointments are shifting federal courts to the right. And Anne says that the impact of that will be felt for years, long after Trump is out of office. They're often the last word on these policies because the Supreme Court only hears about 60 cases a year. So they're very important in these areas that affect how all of us live our lives. Do you think that it's fair to say that this is maybe the most significant way that that Trump has been able to have an effect on the functioning of the government? I think this is one area where he's been most successful and where he's going to leave an imprint that will endure for many years to come, um, in particular because so many of these nominees are young. Coming up at the Senate Judiciary Committee later this week is Allison Rushing, a 36-year-old partner at Williams & Connolly who's been nominated for the Fourth Circuit. And if she is confirmed by the Senate, she'll be the youngest ever appeals court judge on the bench at this moment. And these are lifelong positions or as long as you want them to be. So in theory, she could be on the bench for another 50 years. That's right. So over the course of the last two years, we've seen a historic level of change in the judges that have been confirmed to those courts. That's right. When President Trump took office, he inherited an unusually large number of vacancies on the federal appeals courts, 17. And then since that time, other judges appointed mostly by Republican presidents have also retired, left the bench, or taken something called senior status, which is a lighter workload, allowing him to name more judges in a short period of time than any other president in history. And how does that change the broader judicial landscape? So it changes the makeup on those courts over time. So far, most of the judges he's replacing are other judges who were appointed by other Republican presidents. So it's making larger majorities of judges appointed by Republican presidents or narrowing 
the margin on courts like the Ninth Circuit that tend to lean more liberal. And demographically, too, who, who are these people? Yes, I was really interested. Most of the judges he's naming are white and white men, and again, younger than the judges appointed by Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. Though I can imagine even before this, probably the majority of these judges were already white men. That's right. President Obama did make a concerted effort to diversify the bench. His judges to the circuit courts were 43% women, 34% non-white. He did try to add some diversity to the bench. So among these many judges who have been appointed by President Trump, there is one new judge who is going to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Her name is Naomi Rao. Who is she? So this is the person that President Trump has nominated to replace Brett Kavanaugh, who served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for 12 years before he was elevated to the Supreme Court. Naomi Rao is a former longtime professor at George Mason University's law school. And at the moment, she is President Trump's regulatory czar. Naomi Rao is head of an obscure office called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which I had never heard about until her nomination. But it's an important, powerful office that reviews regulations from the federal agencies in, under the Trump administration. She's been charged with rolling back a lot of regulations that the Trump administration considers burdensome on business. So there'll be lots of questions about what type of regulations she's rolled back, but also about her writing as a law professor and what that says about what kind of judge she might be. And then lastly, about some of her writings as an undergraduate at Yale. Why are her writings as an undergraduate at Yale something that people want to talk about? Well, the Democrats in particular will be interested in talking about this. She wrote for a conservative campus publication and took on really controversial issues about affirmative action and date rape and feminism. And this was in the 90s. And she was highly critical of multiculturalism on campus. She's the daughter of Indian immigrants. So it's a very interesting position for her to take. What do people think about what kind of judge she might be with all those things in mind? Yeah, so I think her legal writings in particular show that she will be pretty similar to Brett Kavanaugh. She's taken very strong positions advocating for a powerful executive and said the president should be able to get rid of the heads of various federal agencies. So as the head of this office within the White House, she's rolled back a lot of regulations and also talked about the need for regulations to be very clear. And if they're not, they should be pulled back and that courts should not defer to agency interpretations if the laws are not clear and Congress needs to better define these regulations. And that's very similar to the positions that Brett Kavanaugh took on the D.C. Circuit. So there's a sense that that would continue if she is appointed to this new position, but she just have more power to sort of aid the rolling back of a lot of these regulations. Sure. As a law professor, she wrote and advocated for a lot of these mm -hmm. positions that Kavanaugh actually quoted in some of his court decisions. So if she is confirmed to the bench, she'll be one of the judges writing on these issues. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks. Anne Marimo is a legal affairs reporter for The Post. Last week, the chiefs of the intelligence agencies testified before Congress. They do this every year, and their goal is to basically inform lawmakers about the biggest threats that face the U.S. at home and abroad. China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, all of which pose unique threats to the United States and our partners. 
So as they start talking, the Kremlin is stepping up its campaign to divide Western political and security institutions and undermine the post-World War II international order. It becomes clear that what they are saying in terms of their estimation of the threat from these countries is not exactly lining up with what President Trump has been saying for a while. Shane Harris reports on national security for The Post. So, for instance, they say, We currently assess that North Korea will seek to retain its WMD capabilities. We are skeptical that North Korea will actually give up all of its nuclear weapons. Because its leaders ultimately view nuclear weapons as critical to regime survival. Well, President Trump is heading into a summit meeting with Kim, and he's promised after they've you know, fallen in love and everything is great and there's peace on the peninsula that they're going to give up all of their nuclear weapons. That's throwing cold water on it. And intelligence chiefs say that ISIS is degraded but not defeated. Of course, they're still dangerous, and they're the largest Sunni terrorist group, and they still command thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. The president recently said they're defeated, so we're bringing all the troops home. So you can see these chasms kind of opening. As all of this was playing out, Shane says that President Trump was getting really angry at the news coverage. From reporting, we understand that President Trump is watching this and is just seething. And you're seeing chyrons running on TV saying, you know, intelligence officials contradict the president. And it was kind of this public moment where the distance between what President Trump and his intelligence people say was so clear. Confidence in Gina Haspel and Dan Coates to give you good advice? No, I disagree with certain things that they said. I think I'm right, but time will prove uh, that. Time will prove me right, probably. And since then, you've seen President Trump lashing out on Twitter, basically contradicting everything that these intelligence officials have said. Right. He said they're wrong. He called them naive. He called them passive. He said they should go back to school. He said intelligence should go back to school, sort of speaking of them as a block. And it was clear that this had really gotten under his skin. And the first impression we had from this was when intelligence officials, and these are, by the way, all people he appointed, you know, for the most part, when they come up and say something that doesn't fit with his story or that he doesn't like, he attacks them. And it was all the more strange because you take Iran, for example. They said, well, we don't think they're trying to build a nuclear weapon right now. All of the other things that they said about Iran are completely what the president has been saying as well. They're a regional threat. They sponsor terrorism. They're behind a proxy war in Yemen. They're testing missiles, all of that. Uh, but I think that uh, Iran uh, is somebody, is, is a nation that we have to watch very closely. They but on this one piece, he seized on it and just kind of threw his officials under the bus. Behind. We're not going to be leading from behind anymore. So... Uh, that's the story. Uh, I have great respect for a lot of people, but I don't always agree with everybody. Okay. And I think you got the sense that he thought that they were openly conspiring somehow to undermine him, which was just not the case. And I think in some ways, seeing that pretty strong reaction from the president was surprising because it was, you know, he's saying that they have to go back to school and it was like pretty offensive. But in some ways, it's not surprising at all because... We've seen many times over the course of the administration him basically ignoring or dismissing conclusions from the intelligence community about things going on in the world. Right. He attacks intelligence officials when they say things he doesn't like, when they say things that run counter to uh, his program. 
He's been doing that really since even the campaign into the transition. At the same time, the intelligence community had made a public statement that Russia was trying to interfere in the election and later it became clear that they believed that they were doing so to try and help Trump. That's when he really started attacking, particularly the CIA. So in addition to attacking them when they say things he doesn't like, there's this very concerted, consistent effort to undermine the public's trust in these institutions and to try to degrade their credibility by kind of bringing out their worst moments and worst mistakes. So if President Trump isn't using conclusions from the intelligence community to make his decisions, like what is he using? On some level, I think he's probably using his gut. He's using kind of preconceived notions. You know, he's never trusted Iran. And by the way, Obama made the Iran deal, so it must be bad. But it's not entirely clear who is sort of speaking in his ear on all of these issues. You get some glimpses of it, though. John Bolton, the national security advisor, has been somebody who very publicly has been not only skeptical about Iran's intentions when it comes to complying with the nuclear deal, but has said things that do contradict what the official intelligence assessment is. So there is somebody who probably is you know, whispering in the president's ear about this. We don't know for sure. At the same time, Bolton is saying he's skeptical about North Korea where President Trump thinks that this is a great relationship with him and Kim, and ultimately they'll fix the problem. So what you see is that sometimes even when there's an advisor who can kind of capture the president's attention and they sync up on an issue in one country, that doesn't mean they see things the same way on all countries. And so, you know, I think there's not one single person who is completely in lockstep, at least in senior leadership, with the president. And what it also tells you is that I think he listens to people who tell him what he wants to hear. So if John Bolton is telling him Iran is actually a threat, they actually want to build a nuclear weapon, they're just playing us, they're really not going to live by the terms of the agreement, Trump will say, like, absolutely, we're on the same page. But if he's telling him, Mr. President, you know, you shouldn't be so trustful of North Korea, maybe it's not going to work out that way. It's, you know, what do you know? It's all about me and Kim. I'm going to handle this. He hears what he wants to hear. I mean, I don't doubt that he is hearing what these intelligence officials say. I mean, we've had in the past day or so, People saying to us, U.S. officials saying, look, he's heard all of the things that were in that testimony, that he's been briefed on it privately. There are just times where he tends to seize on the, on the area of disagreement to sort of emphasize how he sees the world and cast himself as the one who's the smartest guy in the room. So Iran, weapons of mass destruction. North Korea, I can totally convince them to denuclearize. It's all about me and Kim. He's always bringing it back to himself as sort of the, the beginning and the end of all true things. Well, you mentioned North Korea, and there is an expectation that the president is going to be meeting with Kim Jong-un at some point in the next few weeks. What does it say to these world leaders who are in these high-stakes negotiations with the president when he is, like, so publicly dismissive of his own intelligence? Well, one thing it tells them is that they can tell him things that are in contradiction to what his intelligence agencies are telling him, and he might believe them. You know, when you see a, a world leader coming in who is openly feuding with what his advisors and his intelligence agencies are telling him, that shows you where the daylight is that you can exploit, right? So, I mean, you could imagine North Korea saying, you know, oh, your intelligence agencies are far too pessimistic about this. You know, yeah, well, of course we have plans and intentions. I mean, I'm just going to, you know, we're imagining this. You know, any nation wants to know where the gaps are between what the president's being told and what he really believes. And Donald Trump is telling the world about that. When you have someone coming to the table who has already announced that he is 
skeptical, if not distrustful, of the very people behind him in that negotiation, I think that arguably puts him in a very weak position and gives leverage to the other side because there too, there's a disparity. There's, there's a rift within the other party that you can exploit. Frankly, it looked like we were going to war with North Korea. Now, there's no missile testing, there's no rocket testing, there's no nuclear testing. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. And now, one more thing. The designated survivor. The idea is that if something catastrophic would happen and the president and vice president and everybody else in the line of presidential succession who are typically seated in the Capitol during the speech were killed, there would be one surviving member of the government who could rebuild it. For many top officials in Washington, the State of the Union on Tuesday is a night to see and be seen. But one official will be hidden away in case disaster strikes the Capitol. And Features reporter Roxanne Roberts has spent a lot of time thinking about that person. This is a real thing, even though there was a television series. The Capitol's been attacked. Eagle is gone. You are now the president of the United States. I sort of thought, well, where is the show going to go from there? The real thing is a little bit less dramatic than the TV show. It informally started during the Cold War, the idea that Russia might launch some terrible attack after the end of the Cold War and our relations with the Soviet Union began to warm. It still existed, but it wasn't taken all that seriously. The idea was that it was more a custom and a tradition than a genuine need. I talked to a few former cabinet officials who had served as the designated survivor, and one of them went off to have a lovely dinner someplace. Another one, Dan Glickman, who was Secretary of Agriculture, went up to New York. He was at his daughter's apartment, and during the time he was there, he had all the security all the apparatus of the presidential entourage. And the minute President Clinton was back in the White House, it all dropped out. He and his daughter decided to go have dinner, and they were on the street in the rain trying to get a cab. So he went from being the most protected person in New York City to unable to get a cab in the rain, just like a normal person. The issue became serious again after 9-11 in 2001, where people realized that there could be coordinated attacks on Washington. And after that, there is a bunker, an underground bunker that is about two hours outside of Washington. And whoever is the designated survivor is taken to that facility, usually on the day of the State of the Union, and then returned that evening after the president is safely back to the White House. The people designated survivors 
have been told not to talk about it because they could unwittingly give away information that could imperil the the designated survivor. What I have been told is that it's just kind of cool. I mean, you know, you get to see how the inside works. You get to see what the apparatus is around the president. And if you're cabinet secretary, you have some hints of that. But all of a sudden, it's about you. And so you get the full treatment. But I also would think in many ways it should be sobering as well. The worst thing that you can imagine has just happened to our country, something that has never happened to our country before, except in fiction, and you're the person making the decisions. That should be humbling. But thankfully, we've never had to experience that. Roxanne Roberts is a reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. You can learn about all the stories we feature by going to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.